Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. G'day, Cameron. Hey, Jonathan. How are you, mate? Good, good. So we've been talking about ways to spice up the podcast. What have you come up with? Uh, well, I thought maybe it's about time we brought in some guests and uh, I come across a lot of original thinkers in my professional life and I think uh, our audience would get a lot of value from uh, hearing from some of these people. So that's what we're going to try and do. Brilliant. And so today is the day and our first guest is someone you know. It's Catherine Cashmore. Catherine's been working in the Australian real estate market for many years. She's a buyer advocate, according to her company's website. She helps home buyers, investors and developers find, assess and negotiate quality real estate for great prices throughout Australia. Yeah, so uh, I actually know Catherine uh, not from her role uh, as a buyer's advocate, but as president of Australia's oldest economics think tank, Prosper Australia, which is a leading advocate for the ideas of uh, progressive economic philosopher Henry George. Uh, so, uh, Catherine, thanks very much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> So maybe we should start at the top. Uh, we we know each other through Prosper Australia. Um, what what is that, and uh, what do you do there? And who's Henry George, and, <laughs> and why is he so important? Oh, okay, that's a a big question to start with. Um, we do know each other from Prosper Australia, and Prosper Australia is a big passion of mine. It is the oldest Henry George Association in the world, not just um, in Australia. And of course, it is set up along the ethics of Henry George, who people might know a little bit more about him now, because I think with as the Internet's kind of progressed over the last sort of 10 years, and particularly since 2008 and the big downturn, a lot of questions as to, well, why did we have a crash and what causes it and everything? And everyone's pointing at the housing market and credit. And obviously, you know, this isn't a new story. These um, economists such as Henry George were on top of this. Um, well, years ago in the 1890s, Henry George wrote a book called Progress and Poverty. And it was all about what was the cause of depressions in the economy. And he wanted to know why is it that when we, as we progress, as we get all this technological progression, that poverty increases. And he was a great observer. He was um, a journalist and he did his own sort of research into um, why this was happening and he looked at what was going on around him and he came to the same conclusion that I think everybody comes to particularly if you live in Australia and you're economically minded and I'm sure followers of your blog <laughs> and uh, would be also in in furious agreement with what Henry George found but he basically said look this land market is a monopolized market and land which of course mm -hmm. includes all natural elements in economics not just residential land or commercial land but also minerals and the atmosphere and everything around us, of course, is made from land. We're so dependent on it. And you said the monopolization of this, this is that as technology, technology progresses and the wealth progresses, the wealth doesn't go to everybody. It goes to the people that monopolize land and monopolize essential resources. And so he came up with a theory, I want to say it's a theory, I feel like it's not really a theory, it's just common sense to me, to be honest. <laughs> and it wasn't like a new revelation. It wasn't like he was saying 
saying anything that classical classical economists, you know, Thomas Paine and you know, um, hadn't said prior to Henry George because of popping along. It's just that Henry George said it in a very compelling way. He was a storyteller. He was extremely um, charismatic figure. And he said, look, you know what? Let's shift, let's change the tax system. Let's stop taxing laborers, people that are working, you know, and laboring with the sweat of their brow. And let it, let's instead tax the people, tax away the monopoly rents. And because the re monopoly rents meaning these windfall gains that come to landowners and not just land, you know, whether it's government granted licenses, you know, the banking and sector. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've seen it with the taxi licenses and everything. Let's just stop this kind of monopolization. And uh, Henry George, was he was so popular in his time. I think I really want people to understand this. When you hear the name Henry George, in his time, at, at his pinnacle, his book was said to have almost outsold the Bible at the time. More, wow. he, Hundreds of thousands of people turned out to his funeral. He almost won, um, you know, uh, mayor of New York. I think he, he died just sort of before... Um, you know, sort of coming up to that time as he was coming up in his political career. But and, and he taught and he taught Australia as well. And thousands of people would turn out to hear him talk. And there were no microphones at the time. You could hear a pin drop. You know, they were so silent and wow. so tuned in to what he was saying. So and, and of course, it was at a time where land was far more. Um, where I mean, it's monopolized now. The land market is a monopoly, but of course, everybody has like a little slice of it. <laughs> so, but at that time, you know, people didn't. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked me. You already know all of this because I'm not <laughs> telling you anything yeah. that you don't know. You no, could have said all of I that guess... in a much more eloquent way than I have. But yeah, no, it's good to hear from you, Catherine. But I think what's interesting is what you've finished up with there, that he was so popular in his time. Now, I have three economics degrees. And I did not once hear about Henry George in those economics degrees, despite him being one of the most influential thinkers in economics at the turn uh, of the 20th century. Yeah, I think that the, the what he was advocating, well, first of all, I think it's it's quite frightening when for anybody in, let's face it, right, we, we're not really a democracy. We're run by a financial <laughs> system and the, a financial system that cannot fail. And when depressions and recessions happen, um, it's the finance industries that are bailed out that they, you know, and, and mm. we saw it happen in 2008 and likely we'll see it happen again. And, you know, at the time, the, there was Mason Gaffney actually and Fred Harrison wrote a book about this called The Corruption of Economics. And it was about how as soon as people became aware of these ideas and they sort of grasped onto his philosophies and said, OK, we can't have this. It threatened to take money away from the landowners and from the elite. And um, the way that economics was taught in universities, because he was so influential, I mean, his influence kind of went into the early 1900s and the east coast of the US. And there was a big what was called a single tax movement, because that was the, his basically coin line was we'll just have a single tax on land. Um, it was, you know, in practice, it would yeah. probably be a little bit more complicated than that. But it was a good political policy catchphrase to have it. And because it's sort of this philosophy swept through the East Coast of America and it just soon became clear that, you know, that, that there had to be a counteraction to that. 
um, if the system was going to remain as it was. And the counteraction for that really was changing the way economics was taught in universities. And the very, very good book, I would advise anyone to get it and read it, because I think that it's really important to understand the evolution of the teaching of economics. And there's many people that, again, could be far more eloquent than I am on it. But it was really essentially writing land out of the economic textbooks and writing how the banking system really works out of the textbooks. So you had this kind of circular economy <laughs> notion so that, that what we talk about now, when we say that land prices go up now, we say that it's capital gains, you know, that your capital gains, yeah. the, the land, you know, that capital gains have been so much or so. And of course, capital doesn't gain, capital depreciates because it's a man-made thing. <laughs> capital depreciates with wear and tear. Really, it's the land and the location that rises um, in value, but because we don't separate those things. Australia is not as bad, I think, as, as other places, because at least we do have land tax here and we do have um, a, an index and we do we do can value land here. So really, you know, although we yeah. do live in a very speculative country, I think that there's others that are far worse um, situation than we are. But yeah, I mean, that that's really, I think, what happened. And it surprises me, you know, well, it's not surprising to hear you say that, but I think that, hmm. you know, there are... Um, economics professors out there that are really trying to change the way economics is taught and to get a better, more reasonable idea of it. And, and Professor Steve Keen is one of those people that has done a lot of work um, at the economist Richard Werner. And yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that the, the, the sort of politics of writing out land uh, from the economics textbooks, because today land tax is, is very popular amongst economists again. Um, but it's not very popular politically. And so we can sort of see that tension. Uh, once again, 140-odd years after Henry George started writing about it, that you know, we, we sort of had to admit that his idea is very good, um, but the politics of um, actually taxing people who think they've sort of earned the, the capital gains on their land uh, is very, very difficult. I, I would argue that some of that really is down to the fact that we don't we're not really trying to follow the policies of Henry George. Henry George wanted to untax all of the labor income and productivity. Yeah. So he wanted to separate that. And and what we what we try and do now and it's the same at Prosper. I mean at Prosper Australia obviously the uto utopia of what we want is far away from what we think can be achieved in any any mm. year in Australia and so we also advocate policies that really tinker at the edges such as the switch and i know you have very strong views on this but the switch of stamp duty to land taxation yeah. it's better in my mind to have land taxation because it encourages people to do something and do this and that with the land but when you're when you're tinkering around with that in a tax system which already has a lot of taxes that are extremely damaging to the economy and that means that the economy cannot flourish whilst we have taxes that are causing a lot of um, dead weight costs and burdens on the economy and it's just that if if we were to advocate it and explain to people as Henry George advocated it and as many Georgists, as they're known, that kind of follow the philosophy of that advocate it, I think that we would be far better off if we had a country that shared the economic rents and didn't have that kind yeah. of heavy weight of taxation, it would certainly be a, a, a better economy, a more flourishing economy, and it wouldn't have the, the great volatility and the booms and busts that we see, which are really yeah. based on land value, because you know, land value makes up a lot of money on the stock market um, That's right. as well. 
So I want to bring Jonathan in here as well, because uh, you and I, Catherine, have a history of studying property cycles and whatnot. What's what's your take, Jonathan, as an outsider? Does this discussion mm. make sense to you, or do you have? Yeah. Uh, you know how do, how does it help you on the ground, day to day, thinking about property? Well, I, I kind of got two questions. One's a more personal. One's a personal one for Catherine. One's a personal one for me. Um, personal one for Catherine is yeah. I've seen your newsletter on your website called uh, Land Cycle Investor, and it gives uh, advice on buying and selling property. And you have articles like, um, "Is it time to buy an apartment in Melbourne?" question mark so i'm asking look aren't you providing a service to exactly the class of people the investor class that always exercise their political power to stop anything that you've been talking about from happening and is that a contradiction it is a contradiction um to an extent and i a lot of people sort of look at that and they say oh how can you have how can you be so passionate about this and yet on the other side you're teaching investors how to make money from the land market well one one of that i would say that there's a lot of people the the tax system in this country dictates how people should invest and the way that this country is um set up the way the economic system in this country is set up the way the tax system in this country is set up is it says that you're not going to make a really you're not going to be in a very good position as you get into your later years unless you speculate and your most successful speculation and the best position for your, particularly if you, you um, secure a good job is to speculate on land. And I guess the one service that I offer is, is trying to advise people how not to lose money and how to play the game that has been presented to them, how to play the game of monopoly, because we're all subject to it. So you can sacrifice yourself to it if you want and just, you know, sort of walk around on the street and, and protest against it. We, all have a responsibility to do that but on the other side of it there is also um, the situation that we have to thrive in it and when I wrote that article should you buy an apartment in Melbourne I uh, people any of my subscribers will know that I am I really don't feel that apartments are good investments uh, particularly if you want the price to go northwards and it was kind of challenging that concept in that article so I try and steer people away from it but there's a deeper reason as well as to why I do this and that's because of all the advocacy that we've done at Prosper and we've had Many years where we have run campaigns, we had the campaign, for example, Don't Buy Now, which was trying to encourage people. <laughs> it was like a buyer strike idea. It was very kind of a, in, in some of the earlier years at Prosper where we were really realized that most of our um, following at Prosper came from people that weren't landowners, that did see the injustice in the system, or they were um, elderly. They, they understood Henry George. They'd kind of come up, they'd been you know, they'd become passionate about him, but we were missing a whole cohort. And that whole cohort was the investor, homeowner, property owner cohort in Australia. And we understood that unless we got, unless we impassioned that group, that demographic, we're not going to get anywhere, right, in policy. And mm, so the, right. the idea really behind the, I write two net newsletters, one is Cycles, Trends and Forecasts, the other one is the Land Cycle Investor is to teach people to understand what Henry George was saying about why land booms and why we have a bust. And unless you understand how the tax system plays into that, how the economy plays into it, how the banking system plays into it, unless you really understand what they, what we call it in Georgism is seeing the cat 
And it was an old story about people that came across the philosophy of Henry George, that they would look at a photo and it was like one of those magic eye photos. You'd be looking at a landscape, but in within one of the trees, for example, in that landscape would be the outline of a cat. And you can't see it when you're looking at it because all you see is the landscape. But once you see the cat, you can't see anything else. The cat is the representation of land. Once you understand the injustice that is produced within our economy from having allowing people to keep the windfall gains from their land price going upwards, then you, you cannot justify the system. So a lot of investors and a lot of my clients, that when they come to me, when I talk to them, I talk to them a lot about the philosophy of Henry George. I talk to them about how that creates a cycle and why it creates a cycle and the destruction from that. And believe it or not, they, a lot of them then go on to become members of Prosper and support what we're doing because they can see the injustice of it. It's just that they don't want to. Whilst we're in the game, you've got to play the game. You know, it's the, the Hunger right, Games yeah. kind of philosophy. Yep. Yeah, I get that totally. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I guess the one thing that I wanted to know for myself is fishing, fishing for someone to make me feel good about the life reality that I, that I live. Are there some circumstances you think where it's better to rent in the sense that it's economically rational to rent? Uh, and I've therefore been economically rational, uh, even though I've had no choice in the matter. To me, because property and land is treated in Australia as an investment, it's not treated as a home then I don't believe, unless you want to get married and settle down and have kids and put it, put yourself in a property and not move for the next 20 years, I actually don't think it's sensible to own your own home. <laughs> I think ah, it's a, I okay. think that you're very, you, you would do economically better to rent and rent where you want to live and invest in areas that you can afford and that are gentrifying. I mean, that, that it really is the way to make wealth from land values going up because the reason the problem the problem in australia the reason that we have so much in the press about housing affordability and what's going on now is nothing new it's that you could just recycle the newspapers year after year because someone's going to be talking about there's unaffordable housing or there's a tight rental market we had a tight rental market in 2016 2015 there were overcrowding issues and people screaming that property was unaffordable and you can trace that back through every cycle the point is is that property goes up more than it goes down and when it comes down it doesn't seem to wipe out the gains from the previous 10 years very often yeah. so the the whilst you're in that that system that you're not going to change it. so my advice would be that you're actually very sensible renting and finding a place that you want to rent so, and then sure, but can you i pick you up on something yes yeah that's that's the thing i wanted to pick you up on if you want to invest so for most yeah. people it's just renting there's no if you want to invest, they don't have the money mm. for that. So uh, what? it's really a choice between renting or putting the money into a mortgage. So if, you, if, you, if you're talking to someone that won't have money to invest, what, would your advice be the mm. same? My, the, unfortunately, that's the situation from the economy being structured as it is because it's an economy that forces people that they have to speculate in order to create wealth. And so you're either speculating in the stock market, which actually ha does follow the real estate market, the real estate cycle. So, for example, when property prices are going up, it's very good for building stocks and banking stocks and REITs, for example. So you can choose to invest in it like that. But if you've got, if you're saying to me, well, you know, what's better, renting or putting, you know, giving my rent to the landlord or finding a property that I can afford and giving a similar amount to myself to the property you're obviously better as a as an owner than you are as a renter 
in the in our economy i'm not it's not it's nothing again i mean for for the record i don't um i don't live in the properties that i invest in i rent where i want to live and i invest elsewhere so i am a renter also mm. <laughs> i'm aware of the, and it suits me very well that's very interesting, Catherine, because I know typically it costs a little bit more um, to rent money from the bank than it does to rent a property from a landlord. And especially for apartments, once you throw in um, the costs of body corporate fees and all, all the upkeep, et cetera, you know, you're losing money, essentially. This is why we say people are negative gearing because they're actually, um, the rent is, is less than their costs of owning. Catherine, what percentage of Australians would find this conversation about investing uh, relevant? <laughs> Are we talking about 10%? Oh, maybe 10%. I think Cameron a few minutes ago told me the yeah, number of people. Yeah. That is... <laughs> so in, actu- in actual fact, um, if you the, the best ABS data on, on uh, households that own uh, another residential property is 18%. So about one in six Australian households. Um, which is why, obviously, commentary and, and analysis of property investment is is so popular in this country. Well, I'm thinking the opposite. It's, we uh, have so much talk about it, but the vast majority of people, eighty percent and more, um, will never be uh, in this category of people well, that can invest. Yeah, possibly, but maybe most of them want to be in the eighteen percent. And, <laughs> <laughs> and even though you're not yet a property investor, what do you think, Catherine? Well, I mean, I, I I guess I'm a little bit biased because I'm surrounded by people that want to invest in property because of the line of work that I'm in. Um, but to me, it feels like it's rather insane in this country, particularly compared to others. I mean, I've lived in America. I lived obviously in the UK and areas of Europe. And I've never been to any country, no country. Like when I came to Australia, the way that the property market works here, the auctions that are street auctions which kind of present the real estate agents like rock stars the big billboards that are lit up outside of houses the big thick magazines they used to put outside of the real estate agents offices the the tv which is really slanted towards um a lot of program i mean what's the most watched program in australia i think it's the block um if i'm correct i mean there's a lot of interest here and that's really because our economy anybody that at some point people become economically minded and whether they can and invest in property or not they realize that they if they're renters they're not considered it's like that um, rba spoof account a spoof account on twitter they kind of not they're kind of treated in this country a little bit like an underclass because the policies in this country favor the people that own land and i'm not agreeing with it i do not like it that's why i'm president of prosper and that's why i would encourage anybody mm. to join prosper because we're one of the very few organizations that really try and highlight and work against this and we work, want to work against this to ensure that people are all prosperous hence the name but it is a fact that australia is just one of those countries and the reason obviously is because the property is a barbecue story you cannot get away from the fact that in the boom phases of the cycle your block of land if you own a well-located block of land it will probably earn more than you than you will earn through the year in your wage income. And so that's why on my Instagram feed, and I and again, obviously, it's going to give flash up stuff that is relevant to what I do. But if I'm scrolling through Instagram or any other social media, I'm just bombarded with these 20-year-olds that are telling me that if I want to invest in property, to sign up and come on some course with them and they have some innovative idea about how that I how I can do it. Yeah. 
blows my mind. It, the, the atmosphere in this country is yeah. just very, very different from what you would get elsewhere. Um, so I guess I want to ask you a question and it goes back to that. Is it a t- good time to buy an apartment? And you said we don't recommend buying a, an apartment. Uh, what's what's the biggest thing that that you think Australian buyers get wrong or the biggest myth that they have about property markets that you find in your daily life? Um, is it related to this apartments? And maybe you can explain mm. why you don't recommend apartments. Yeah, your property, your property is only worth what you can sell it for. And the apartment market and the people that live in apartments is quite a, a skinny demographic that buy apartments. So first of all, the biggest problem that people have is that they hear location, 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 which is the, the overused catchphrase, and they think that they just need to buy something in a good location, and that's going to do it. And unfortunately, it doesn't. In fact, the, the type of property that you purchase is just as important as the location that you purchase it in. So when you when mm. I say that your property is only worth what you can sell it for, and that goes for evaluation as well, because the valuer is valuing it against properties that have sold that are similar to it. And when you break down who buys apartments, well, it's mostly investors that buy apartments, <clears throat> and they wax and wane. Wax and wane with the sentiment in the economy so when it's a boom time or you know if we've got population growth or anything they might they might get um like enchanted into buying an apartment by spruikers out there that are saying that they're Mm. in a good location that they're a good buy and it's a new apartment but apartment you're paying a lot for a bit of space in the air that's uh that again and the demographic that live in apartments it's mostly a younger demographic. Again, when you look at ABS data, it's, I think it peaks at around the age of 27 years, and then only 14% uh-huh. of 27-year-olds live in apartments, something along those lines. You'd need to double-check my calculation there. But, but So there's not a big demographic that live in apartments. It's mostly younger people that rent apartments. The apartment market is a rental market. Um, and then, of course, if you just want to get yield from it, you have to deal with all the issues that are in apartments the older ones are having insurance costs go up because they're getting becoming older buildings they're depreciating and needing a lot of work done on them they're better because they're bigger but they're not very well soundproof the newer ones as we know from what's been going on in the press over the last few years are really badly constructed and so there is very (laughs) i live in an apartment (laughs) no more more of my disclosure here um so i i i'm and i'm very happy it's a very nice apartment but thank god i'm not an owner of it because they're uh, the facade is has been said. Oh, it's a, the facade is a fire danger. The lifts are breaking down. The, there's always, you know, that they're having to upgrade the building. And the apartment prices, when you look back at them, they just haven't re- really appreciated much at all. Even the ones that were built post-war. I mean, the the general capital appreciation of them has been pretty poor. I did see somebody. Yeah. I think Core Logic released um, one of the things that I put in that article was Core Logic released its it releases obviously its monthly data pack, and as part of that pack, they break down the LGAs that have performed the best in each of the capitals. And in Melbourne, everything had gone backwards, but Melbourne City had gone rocketing up six percent or something through 2022, and it might be even a little bit more now. And everybody said, ah, there you go. That's because we've got immigration and people are returning to the apartment market. So I dug into it a little bit deeper. And what you'll see is that there were some very highly priced apartments that were sold in Melbourne because we have a new Uh tallest that's being built. And I think the penthouse sold for a record. And again, please check me on this. I'm just saying it from the top of my head. I think it was something like 35 million or something. I mean, that rockets the medium up for a start. But if you look at what the sales price is, so if you go back in sales, you've got a good sales database, 
database and you just put in, okay, what sold in Melbourne City over the last year? And you pick an apartment, you know, that's sold and then you trace back what it's sold for, what it's repeatedly sold for over the last however long it's been constructed for. They haven't gone up at all. In yeah. fact, many of them have been still been sliding backwards in price. So, so first of all, apartments aren't good. Right. What you need to you need to come back to the, the philosophy that really the thing that that drives. So first of all, it's only your property is only worth what you can sell it for again. So you want to yeah. it, to appeal to the broadest buyer demographic that is possible out there. And our broad, biggest buyer demographic are families with children or families thinking about having children. We know that first home buyers, they buy not as singles because you can't really afford much of a house on a single income for a lot of young people so they form a couple in their early early 30s that's your demographic of a first home buyer they might be thinking about having a child over the next five years a small one and two bedroom apartment isn't going to cut it and the banks don't like lending first home buyers for apartments so (laughs) go out buy a villa unit go out and buy a block of land the land the the subdividable blocks of Mm. land the 600 700 square meter blocks of land they are disappearing in supply because they're mostly located in the middle ring suburbs in the outer regions so for example like if you think about melbourne um i mean you know it's similar for the other states there's slight differences but i'll talk about melbourne but the developers bought up all when the urban growth boundary was put around melbourne the developers moved in and bought up the land within that boundary that was rezoned to residential they said okay you can build here at least the lab the the ones that they bought it all, all on options and then they drip feed it onto the market yeah. for stage releases. And the land sizes are very small, 300, 400 square meters. They build to the boundaries. You've got these kind of noddy house new estates and the, the land values don't appreciate at all in those. These, the middle ring suburbs where the established schools are, the established shopping strips, subdividable block of land, land is worth its zoning and its location. Yeah. That's, that's really it's- the thing to buy. It's funny, Catherine. You actually sound a lot like my my dad. If if you're listening, Dad, don't you think so? <laughs> um, he he was a, a, a sort of amateur property investor, and he would always tell me, "Don't buy an apartment. Buy in a middle ring suburb. Buy a big block that maybe you could subdivide in the future. The value's not in the um, materials or the building. The value's in the land." and you know, the same sort of thing. And and he was very uh, successful with his investment. And it's interesting that that's still the case. And and on the apartments, um, I live in West End in Brisbane, which is a, a massively growing and gentrifying area with lots of apartments. And a lot of the resales now, even the pre-financial crisis apartments that were new and off the plan in 2005 and six, are getting roughly the same prices today. And you know we're, we're talking coming in on two decades of very little um, price gains, and those buyers were negatively gearing, so they've been losing money <laughs> for most of the last twenty years, and uh, maybe they'll get back what they put into it. Um, so it seems pretty yeah. bizarre, but we're not we're not um, the Joe Rogan podcast here. We try and wrap up in forty minutes, so I'm gonna. <laughs> Yeah, so I I just want to ask a couple of final questions, Catherine, because I was on actually on your podcast and we talked about the outlook for 2023 and I've said no recession. So um, there's sort of two things I wanted to ask you. One is, so buyers get a bit caught up in location and they forget that the type of property is wrong. What's something policymakers and the public debate gets wrong about housing? And what do you see on the ground? What do you think is likely in 2023? There's so much um, 
fear mongering out there that this price correction is going to keep going, that we're in for a big recession. So as a, what are your thoughts on those last two things? Yeah, well, I feel like I'm talking to your playbook now when you say, that's why I had you on my podcast, Cameron, because yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely do not think that we're going into recession. In fact, I'm pretty bullish on the, on the property market, despite um, rates rising, I feel that the, all the things that really we discussed is that household incomes have been improving. I'm not saying that this is an easy atmosphere, but I think it's a pretty good atmosphere to buy in because there's good negotiation conditions. But I see that improving. And then I see mm. that there's um, a lot of big building projects that are in the works. So there was one announced in Melbourne that they're going to build a whole um, new mini city called called New Epping, um, north of the city. And of wow. course, we've got immigration that's flooding in, that's pushing back up to record levels. And um, that's putting pressure, obviously, on the rental market. So rents are going to continue to increase for the time being. There is a, a stop date to that, obviously. So we've got all of mm. these pressures on government. And that means that government are going to to wave their hands in the air like they have done for the past decades. And they're going to say, we just need to increase. Not only them, I shouldn't say, there's not only them, the real estate agents will do it as well. Yeah. Just don't don't do anything. <laughs> Let's loosen, let, allow people to, to borrow. I know there's been a few indications about the the buffer and everything but there will be pressure on to allow people to borrow so they can get into housing markets and they're not stuck on the rental ladder and this is just inevitable because this has happened time and time yeah. again and then they will wave their hands in the air and say well we haven't got enough supply so there will be approvals for these big building projects in the inner city the apartments and everything i know that new ha new housing has suffered but that's really because the demand was brought forward in the pandemic um, but the indicators that the buyers that I work with, you know, the, the, the general feel of things with the active buyers in the market is that they're not overextending themselves. They're very aware that um, rates might continue to rise. So they're being very careful. That doesn't indicate to me that we're about to head into a downturn. It indicates to me that people are planning for the future and being cautious and that the property market is yeah. not going to rock it up like we have seen in previous years. And, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just don't see... I just don't see that that we're about to enter recession. And of course, we are on the upswing of a commodity cycle, and that's very beneficial for us as well. The only way that I see all of this being disrupted is um, through war. If we get if an escalation <laughs> of what has been yeah. happening in Europe, which is a very real possibility. So, for example, if China were to move on Taiwan, if um, what's been happening in Europe were to threaten what's going on in the Middle East because there's tensions down there and there's, and that actually is what you would expect at the top of um, the Kondratiev wave. I don't know whether your listeners would be familiar with it, but we're- I love the Kondratiev wave because my, my, my hero, Emmanuel Wallerstein, used to talk about that all the time. Uh, well, then you would love I'm going to jump in because if you can explain <laughs> that in 30 seconds, this is about cycles, right? Long, long social and economic cycles. Yes, correct. I'm not really familiar. Nikolai Kondratiev was um, an economist back when um, uh, actually he was um, executed at the age of 46 because Stalin asked him to do an investigation on, on capitalist economies and he wanted really um, old Nikolai to justify his opinion that they were heading for a demise. And so Nikolai got together all of these, um, you know, he looked at pig iron and he also looked at wages and and stuff but he looked at all these commodity 
prizes that were available to him at the time. And he recognised that there was a long cycle here of around 25 years up and around 25 years down. So 25 to 30 years oh. up, 25 to 30 years down. And so he he sort of put all of this into a paper you can get it on on the internet it was very interesting and then unfortunately <laughs> was executed at the age of 46 thankfully his research <laughs> didn't die with him but he basically that actually allowed him after his death to, to forecast which would happen after his death the down the downturn in the 1930s because that's where the Kondratiev wave um would would you know was again set the economy was set to go into a downturn Mm -hmm. so it allowed him to do that and then extrapolating forward we can see from that cycle that we're heading up to a peak now in commodity prices around the end of this decade Um, and then again we will be going into a a downside of that and the real estate cycles it's basically three real estate cycles the Kondratiev wave but um, you get you get uh, bigger booms and shorter busts in commodity rich countries on the real estate cycle as the cycle as the wave goes up so if you think Norway and Canada and um, Australia we didn't suffer as badly in 2008 because we had that commodity wealth going on and the same is really happening now we're in a much more fortuitous position than America is um, and then on the downside of it you know it, if if you don't have the commodities to sell and you're not one of those commodities producing the the countries then obviously you suffer very badly on the downside i would encourage because it's so difficult to conceptualize this idea yeah. into a couple of minutes um i did actually write if you go to land the land cycle investor yeah the land cycle investor mm. I, I wrote a quick article on it and i actually did an interview with um, a very smart guy called david murrin who is absolute expert on the k wave and uh and um, oh. also thinks that we're heading towards World War Three, so you can enjoy that. As oh my well. <laughs> goodness! Well, I, I really hope that that is uh, fails in its prediction this time around. But uh, as you know, Catherine, I'm definitely uh, a keen follower of these long-term cycles and trends, as you are. What's quite interesting is while we've been talking, the lending indicators from the ABS have come out uh, for December, and they've they declined for housing nearly 30% year on year from December to December. Um, Look, I I think one of the things people get wrong is they see a decline in the rear view mirror and then just simply extrapolate that and they miss this cyclical nature of what happens. After a decline, you get a a recovery. So I think that's why we're on the same page there. One place I think we differ is on the rental market in the US. The rents are already peaking in a lot of places. So I think in Australia, it really depends on immigration in the capital cities and and whether all these major projects that are underway come online uh, in the next six or 12 months. So look, that's been a great conversation, Catherine. Where can our listeners find you uh, if they want to read more about uh, these long waves, Henry George, or what you think's going on in the property market? Sure. Um, well, you can. F- my website is cashmoreco.com.au. Um, Prosper's website is prosper.org.au. And then the um, material that I write is through Fattel Investment Research. So if you just Google Fattel Investment Research, it's, it's fattel.com.au, but you'll find the, the newsletters that I write there. And um, yeah, if you, if, People are unfamiliar with um, it's not just the concepts about, you know, what's good to invest in, but it's also understanding how the land cycle works. And there's a wealth of information in those publications. So one is the land cycle. 
um, investor. Follow me on Twitter. You'll find you'll find the links and everything there as well. Um, CC underscore yeah. underscore Cashmore, and then the other one is Cycles, Trends, and Forecasts. Terrific. Thanks for coming on the show, Catherine. I hope uh, our listeners got a, a different perspective on things uh, from you today, and we'll put as many links as we can to for our listeners to find you in the show notes. So thanks very much. Amazing, Cameron. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.